Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We'll talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. So now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, I want to thank all of my guests who have appeared on Movie Beat and all of the listeners for tuning in and for sharing Movie Beat with your industry connections and your friends for your emails, your phone calls, your feedback, and your support, but also for retweeting the interviews and, and posting on Facebook or MySpace or emailing people about uh, what's coming up. Keep in mind that you can subscribe to Rex Sykes Movie Beat at the official page, which is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. That's my name. And uh, you can click on the RSS feed right there on the welcome page, and that way you'll always be updated to uh, changes in the website, upcoming interviews, cast and crew listings, uh, events, parties, premieres, networking, things like that. So be sure you subscribe right there on the welcome page. Now keep in mind, if you're listening to this live, that you can make Movie Beat a favorite, you can make us a friend, you can leave comments, uh, and I've opened the chat room window, so uh, you can uh, ask questions of my guests in the chat room. Also, you can always email in advance questions by uh, contacting me through the website. Just put the name of the guest in the header and questions in the body of the letter, and then we'll be able to uh, ask those on air, and you'll be able to get some of your questions answered. Um, if you're listening to uh, RexSykes.com and you're listening to this as an archive show, keep in mind that there are other great interviews to listen to, and be sure to check them all out right there at the interview page. Now, before I bring on my guest today, keep in mind that whether you're listening live or to an archived interview, you can share Rex Sykes Movie Beat with everyone. As I've said before, you have my permission to repost um, these links as long as the content is reproduced in their entirety and that you don't edit. And uh, you can join the Facebook Rex Sykes Movie Beat group or fan page. And again, thanks for all your support and for being with us today. My upcoming guests are going to be uh, screenwriter Denny Spey. He will be coming up next. He'll be talking about screenwriting and comic books. The author of The Real Truth, Reed Martin, follows. We're doing a series on, on his book, The Real Truth. It's an excellent read. Tim Mashansky is a location scout. We'll be talking about what location scouts and location managers do, but also about his book, The A to Z Guide to Film Terms. In January, we will have uh, Douglas Day Stewart. He's the author screenwriter of uh, Officer and a Gentleman, Blue Lagoon, Boy in a Plastic Bubble. He directed Thief of Hearts, which he wrote, and others. Patrick Girardi is a post-production uh, sound supervisor and re-recording mixer. He will be talking as well. And then we're also going to have John Reese, who's a, a film director, and he's the author of Think Outside the Box Office, a book on distribution, uh, distributing and uh, distribution in today's day. Um, I also want to 
make a mention for John Keyes. He's the director we've had on the show. His movie, Fall Down Dead, will be playing December 18th through the 24th at the Lamel Music Hall, number three, on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. So if you're in that area, be sure to check out John's movie, Fall Down Dead. My guest today, I am thrilled to have, he's been referred to as a renaissance man. Uh, and his performance called uh, Ticket to Heaven was considered one of the best performances of the decade in uh, the 1980s. He's worked in over 10 countries and in three languages. He starred opposite legendary performers such as Sophie Loren, uh, Catherine Deneuve, Charlton Heston in Hollywood. He's been called an actor's actor uh, and, and one of the best. And uh, he has over 120 film credits to his name. He writes, he directs. He produces, he acts, he paints. I think he does it all. I am so pleased to have you with me today, Mr. Nick Mancuso. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Rex. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's a heck of an intro is all I can say. <laughs> well, so it's a heck of an intro. Oh, that's cool. I, no, you do. You do so many different things. And, and you also have a, a system of acting called the, the top system or TOP system for actors. And yeah, I, I developed that. Yeah, I developed it over a 25-year period. Um, actually, I started doing that when I was uh, doing a series called Stingray for NBC in the mid-'80s, and I was up, uh, we were shooting up in Canada, and I was working with a lot of American and Canadian actors, and I couldn't figure out why uh, these actors, some of them uh, that I had worked with on stage, um, you know, because I've been a stage actor for many, many years. I was actually one of the uh, founding members back in the late 60s of uh, what became the Canadian theater movement, because um, uh, during that time, um, you know, we had all these grants to start theaters, right, at, you know, this being part of the 60s. And so I, um, I, I've been around the theater for many, many years as an actor, writer, director, and also developer of these these spaces. And anyway, I couldn't figure out why the stage actors seemed to be so stiff and awkward in front of the camera, and uh, and then began to understand that they were really working in a different medium because the theater medium is one thing, and the film medium is is a totally different kind of, of thing. You know, it's like working in marble or working, um, you know, in wood or better still, doing watercolors um, as opposed to sculpture. And anyway, out of that, um, I started to develop the top system, which really is not a system of acting per se, but it's really kind of an understanding of how camera really works, what camera does, and, um, and its difference between the, the difference between stage and film, because <clears throat> stage actors are, you know, they're ear and voice actors. They're, uh, the stage is an extension of the human ear. In, in Marshall McLuhan-esque terms, and, and camera is very much an extension of the human eye. So they're, they're radically different mediums. And um, anyway, out of that came this uh, top system. I don't pretend to teach acting because I, I don't think acting can really be, be taught, but you can kind of identify what, what interferes with the creative process and, and how to um, identify these uh, problems and eliminate them. So that, that's what got the top system going. And then finally, I, I adapted it also to film acting and and it's part of a i wrote a book called acting for everyone um which is about half finished i'm hoping to get it published in the next few years which goes into exercises and so forth and um if anybody's interested in that stuff they can contact me directly through facebook or through my nick mancuso one at job.com but that it, it's part of my one of the my many interests um 
as you said, you know, I like to paint, I, I write. Um, I also compose, actually. I recently um, had an, um, um, a performance of a piece I did. I've been writing these uh, electronic, electroacoustic pieces, and one of my pieces I recently played in Zagreb. Uh, and, uh, and in Toronto recently, the 50th, 50th anniversary at the University of Toronto uh, Electroacoustic Festival. But um, I think it's just really important to stay creative if you're, uh, you know, an actor or writer, director. It doesn't really make any difference. An inventor, you can be creative with almost anything, right? So that, that's what's really important about all this. Uh, that's absolutely fascinating. And, I mean, you know, when do you find all the time in the day, I guess, is, is the question that I have. I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't find any time. Um, I don't know. I just uh, do what's in front of me and, uh, you know, what interests me. I also have a blog called Nick Mancuso's blog, and, and I also get into, um, you know, various interests, political interests. And I try to stay away from politics. You and I had a discussion. I said, let's not get into politics because then we'll never stop. But, um, you know, one, one should really kind of be um, – um, you know, the old um, uh, uh, a 360 person, if you know what I mean, in this world. We've gotten far too specialized. But Minister Fuller, you know, one of the great minds of our time, uh, the inventor of the geodesic dome, among many other inventions, uh, and a whole new branch of mathematics. Uh, just, you know, I, I thought he was the da Vinci of our era. He was the 60s. Um, you know, we knew about him in the 60s. People don't remember him very well, but um, you know, he um, he argues in, in one of his books that, you know, when you start to specialize, uh, that's really the, you know, that's that's just before, you know, a species starts to go extinct. And and we've gotten over-specialized, if you know what I mean. People, you know, really should, should be able to do everything. It's like the old samurai code. You should be a, you should be a, a martial artist, a cook, a calligrapher, a carpenter. Um, when I studied Aikido, you know, uh, many years ago, you know, you learned how to be a cook and, and other things. So, you know, don't specialize, folks. Just, uh, you know, open yourself up 360 to the world, you know, and all its uh, multifaceted uh, and interesting things. So, at least for me, um, you know, things are, are extraordinarily, I'm never bored, let's put it that way. And keep the critic out, you know, keep the darn critic away. Don't judge yourself. Don't, um, you know, don't, uh, don't judge yourself and don't let yourself get judged, you know. I mean, I started painting uh, out of the blue years ago because, you know, I had read a, a wonderful essay by Henry Miller called Paint as You Like and Die ha Happy. Uh, and to paint is to love again. Henry Miller was one of the great, I think, American writers of our time. Unfortunately known mostly as a dirty book writer, but of course he was a great author uh, wrote well over 60, 80, I think 80 books, endless essays on all sorts of subjects. Um, um, and, um, you know, really should be a lot better known, um, you know, than, you know, the, the standard uh, writers that we know about, like, you know, Hemingway and Faulkner and, and, and all that. Miller really was way up there. And, and Miller wrote an essay years ago, uh, that Paint As You Like and Die Happy, where he when he was um, in Paris, uh, hanging around people like Brock and Picasso and all that, you know, trying to write, and just before he got his first book published, *Topic of Cancer*, uh, which was published by Anais Nin, um, the great uh, French uh, writer, um, you know, he uh, he uh, realized that as a child he he was always drawing and painting, and then some teacher or somebody made him feel, um, you know. Um, 
awkward or whatever about one of his drawings or paintings, you know, some somebody made a comment like, you know, you know, there are no blue trees, um, that sort of thing, and he stopped. And then years later, in his 40s, uh, influenced by these great artists, he started to do watercolors and, and painted for the rest of his life, doing these really glorious, beautiful, childlike, um, spiritual watercolors, um, and loved doing it. And I remembered, and this was around the time I was doing Stingray, the series for, for NBC, um, I'd had uh, a car accident uh, where I'd uh, shortly after that period of time had been hit uh, by a car and, and uh, had a severe uh, head injury. You know, my scalp was ripped off my head, actually. Um, drunk, drunk driver, you know, and not me, but uh, this drunk driver hit me while I was driving uh, at night uh, near, uh, it was near uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, in fact, I was visiting my, my then ex-wife, um, uh, Barbara Williams, who, who actually did Douglas Day Stewart's Thief of Hearts that you just m- mentioned. It was her first starring role. And she was working with, you know, she was working with Patrick Swayze at the time, and uh, before he became a big star. Anyway, um, I ended up uh, uh, in recovery for um, about a couple of months, and during that period of time, I started to do these watercolors after I, I did um, after I read this essay, and I just found tremendous relief in doing the watercolors, um, not thinking of myself as a painter in the least, nor caring. Uh, I just enjoyed it, and pretty soon I was doing hundreds of them. And um, a friend of mine, who's a, a very well, a very famous Austrian painter, Ferdinand Malakar from uh, Vienna, saw these watercolors and, and announced to me that I was a painter. And I said, I am. And he said, Yes, and I will show you the basics. So he taught me how to gesso and stretch canvas and do, you know, just the basic stuff. And I just started doing it. I built a studio long, narrow studio. I used to run towards the canvas and just, you know, use all kinds of uh, medium and sea salt and sand and spaghetti, whatever, you know, I could get my, and just had a ball doing it. And, and, I, and I just bring that up because I just think it's important for people to kind of just get into the creative headspace, you know, especially in this era, especially at this time <clears throat> when everything is so uh, oppressed and, you know, financially, economically under such duress. Um, just stay creative, outcreate the problems of life. You know, that's my motto. Anyway, sorry for rambling. No, no, you, you said, you've said, uh, you know, an incredible mouthful there. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you're well-rounded and you're exposed to a lot of things, expose yourself to a lot of things and you, and I don't want to say dabble, but, but you, but you jump in and you get involved with it. I, I, what I loved was you said, you know, I, you know, I just started painting and I just did it. You know, I didn't think about being a painter and, and the idea well, the same with writing. And I mean, the same with writing. I started doing poetry when I was 12 because I had uh, my family is an Italian immigrant family. We, I migrated from a, a small town in the south of Italy in Calabria right after World War II. Uh, I was born in 1948. And in 1953, my family um, migrated to Toronto, Canada. And um, uh, we were there about five years, went back to Italy, and um, I have an uncle who's still, who's still alive, he's about almost 92, um, who's a professor of Italian and, and a sculptor, and, and I fell under his tutelage uh, when I went back. He, he effectively you know, taught me how to speak Italian, because our language, our Calabrian language, is, is, is a dialect. It's not really a dialect. It's its own language, but it's not Italian. And uh, Italian is studied in schools, and 
the way he taught me Italian was he put, um, you know, a huge uh, table under these, um, in this uh, wonderful little garden, you know, with fig trees, a Mediterranean garden, and put down about 30 books in Italian and English and just said, read them and translate them and just left me to my own devices. And, and, uh, um, and then I, he just said, you know, I want you to start writing some poetry. And I didn't even know what a poem was. And, um, you know, I just started uh, playing, basically, and, uh, and uh, bit by bit, uh, started to write these poems in Italian, and I was published when I was 12, uh, because he sent the stuff away. And, but the point is, is that it was because of the atmosphere of, um, you know, benevolent creativity of, of uh, uh, you know, just uh, nourishing, um, nourishing energy. You need to have nourishing energy around you. And our atmosphere right now is so tainted and toxic, toxified, if you know what I mean, um, in the world because of the whole crisis and the, really the whole mentality of the last 15 years, which has been awful. The greed is good uh, idea, you know, to say nothing of things like the insanity of derivatives and, you know, money making money and doing nothing, producing nothing. You know, they're not uh, making food or, or building houses or sculpting a piece of wood or you know, uh, I'm Italian by birth, so Italy is one of those countries where, you know, creativity is everywhere. And it's everywhere because I think uh, it's almost in the soil. There's, there's, a, there's a tremendous love and respect of people that are trying to invent, to create. And um, I read a statistic at one point that 80% of almost all the inventions in Europe have come from Italy. Um, and, uh, and America, too, you know, has been really a center of creativity for so many years. You think what's come out of this country, it's astounding in the last hundred years, you know, from, from the automobile industry to aerospace to computers. It's a highly creative and inventive society um, because, um, you know, that uh, the, 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 there's been respect for this idea of the individual. Um, but the last 20 years, of course, it's gotten also corporatized. I said I'd stay away from politics, but I can't help myself. Um, yeah. It's all gotten so corporatized, and effectively what it's done is just squeezed tight the sphincter muscle of our uh, creative output, I think, and created an atmosphere whereby, you know, really people are not creating all that much. But one thing I do know is that the creative spirit can't be stopped. You know, it's a, it's a spiritual thing, and... and um, and, and, you know, it's going to reemerge. Re Who knows what's going to come out of America now? Maybe we're going to make breakthroughs in, in energy creation or something. You know what I mean? Anyway, that's the sort of thing. You know, the, so writing or, or painting or inventing. I used to like to invent things when I was a kid because my main interest was um, science before I got into the arts. Um, you know, and children, I like that, right? Now, there's an old definition of acting that uh, it's basically, um, uh, you know, um, children's games with adult rules and uh right. you know so yeah you know childlike play is really at the root of it it's when everything starts getting really serious that, that the creative impulse shuts down and nothing is produced there is no abundance if you know what i mean so anyway that's that's my story and i'll stick to it well, <laughs> you know, you've said so much, and, and, but one of the things that you just said about being childlike or, you know, you've, you, you've, you've actually encouraged people to just go do something and do it for the sake of having fun and enjoy it, and if, you know, if you're passionate about it, yeah, maybe the money will follow well, you. Know, follow your bliss, pretty, yeah. Yeah, but follow your bliss, and I, I yeah. think you've yeah. articulated that excellently, so I appreciate that. There was, there, yeah. was, there was a phrase that you used, and I can't, 
I, I can't yet recall it. Um, if we if we thought about acting, because um, the top system is is what is tension, objective, and persona. Well, the te- yeah, I, what I sort of realized is that I kind of distilled everything down. I, you know, I, I've had like I said, I had a scientific background, so I tend to think in somewhat scientific terms and try to identify, you know, the forces in operation. You know, the independent variable, the dependent variable. In my opinion, after doing it for about 40 years, I realized there were three major areas of concern for the actor or indeed for any creative person. Now, most of these ideas, of course, I got from the great one, um, you know, Konstantin Stanislavski, you know, the guy who started it all in the turn of the century, the man that uh, brought us, um, you know, the so-called method. He never had a method. It was a methodist method. But in, in, in uh, you know, in New York, of course, the, the group uh, theater and Lee Strasberg and all that the creation of the actor's studio. But, you know, all that could be laid squarely at the feet of Konstantin Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. But um, um, the what he, uh, you know, what, and I read him when I was 18, and, you know, like a, an arrogant 18-year-old, I read his books, and I thought, oh, well, you know, this is so simple, you know, so simplified. And, and like all great ideas, they are simple. But as I examined it, I, I realized, and as I examined my own experience in the business, I realized that there were really three major factors that would interfere with the process, so the creative process. One, Stanislavski talked a great deal about, which he referred to as tension. Well, tension is not, you know, being tense necessarily. There's different kinds of tension. You know, there's physical tension we know about very easily. There's, um, you know, there's mental tension, which is a real problem. A lot of people have tremendous mental tension. That's where that specialization idea comes in for, you know. That's when you've already got the, the result before you've got the result. And, and you've got to, you know, you've already established the road before you look for the road. Um, and so tension or mental tension, emotional tension, and even spiritual tension. And what I began to realize, and I call it tensegrity because uh, tensegrity refers to the concept of integration and tension. Uh, tensegrity was a term that Buckminster Fuller, the inventor of the geodesic dome, came up with in terms of finding a term that referred to the correct amount of, in a sense, tension to maintain stability uh, in the universe. Uh, The geodesic dome is the most stable structure in the universe and it consists of triangles. Um, So he had quite an influence on on my thinking about uh, this this top system. Um, So tension tensegrity is the first thing, the only thing that will interfere, um, you know, with the process, not the only thing, but one of the most uh, important things is is tension, I used to say, um, that eventually manifests in the actor as paralysis or stage fright. Um, Stanislavski himself had started this process because he was, um, you know, he was a pure amateur, i.e. lover of the theater. He was uh, born to do it. His, um, his grandfather had been a, a serf in Russia who liberated himself and made a tremendous amount of money. Uh, his father uh, grew up very wealthy, and when Constantine was born, um, the father actually built him a theater uh, in in this huge, uh, you know, palazzo they had um, in Moscow. So from the age of four or five, or ten or six, I can't remember, he started doing plays and loved it. And then when he moved to Moscow, he started the Moscow Arts Theater, which he founded and, you know, discovered, um, uh, of course, the great uh, Chekhov, Anton Chekhov, and... Mm-hmm and, uh, you know, developed him and, and, and then started doing these plays that absolutely galvanized um, Russian society and then European society and then the world. Because here, 
was a system of acting, and I put system in quotation marks, that actually brought to the foreground a sense of reality and verisimilitude that nobody had really seen up to that point. That school was a school that, in a sense, infected the, the New York stage for many, many years, out of which, you know, came the Brandos and the James Deans and the Montgomery Cliffs and, you know, that fabulous renaissance of, of extraordinary acting that America produced until just recently. Um, you know, these uh, extraordinary creative spirits, highly influenced by Konstantin Stanislavski. Um, and um, so... Um, he was doing theater for years and hit a crisis in his work and he couldn't understand why he had quote lost inspiration um inspiration coming from the latin word inspirare to breathe in uh, he couldn't breathe in anymore in a sense so being somewhat uh, you know certainly scientific in his thinking he began to try to analyze what was interfering with the creative process why couldn't he get inspired why had he lost that sense of childlike play? You know, a child doesn't need to be inspired. A child just starts to play, you know. I mean, you don't have to, like, you know, give them a pep talk. Um, and, he, and he approached the theater very much with the same kind of sort of joyous uh, abandon. And suddenly lost it, or slowly lost it. And he began to realize that the central cause for that was varying forms of tension, uh, and, uh, or what we call stage fright. And, and those studies, um, his research in that, led to what we eventually uh, re refer to as the method. There is no method. It's a methodless method. Um, and again, the whole idea of emotional memory and effective memory exercises and all that sort of thing. But his basic tenet was, you know, keep doing research. In other words, you know, don't lock it in one place. There is no one path to the mountain. You know, you've got to create your own. In fact, when Stella Adler, you know, the great uh, acting teacher out of New York, went to see Stanislavski, and I think she was the only one of the group that actually did go, not uh, Strasberg or Hal Klerman or the others, she was shocked to discover Stanislavski um, t uh, directing an actor and kind of showing him how to hold his hand midair, almost like a piece of sculpture, and she, she was staggered because, of course, you know, in the method you're not supposed to tell the actor how to do it. And, and Stanislavski looked there and said, no, 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 we, we do those exercises in our bathroom. In other words, there is no one way. You keep experimenting, you know, do the marionette systems, do this, all kinds of systems out there to uh, explore. There is no one way. And, uh, but he did know one thing, which is tension. And, and that's, a, that's really a, a, almost a misnomer. Because um, it, isn't, it isn't just tension, because you think of tension, as I say, most people think of being tense. It really isn't about that. It really has to do with congealed or compressed energies that you haven't tapped, inner resources or unconscious ideas that you haven't really um, allowed to manifest. Something is blocking that. Most of the time, it's our own self-critical evaluation. Um, there's a story that Stanislavski tells, which had quite an impact on me, about him and a group of actors trying to create a role, create a character and in the theater. And they all had costumes and makeup. You know, in those days, of course, actors actually transformed themselves, not like today, not too much with some exceptions. So they had wigs and, you know, beards and, you know, and, and costumes of all kinds. And all the actors are, you know, putting together a character, creating a role, inventing one. 
and he couldn't do it. And he kept uh, trying this and trying that. There was no inspiration. He had no feeling. And he couldn't figure out why. And finally, he, in frustration, he rubbed all of his makeup all over his face and this kind of greenish pallor appeared, this kind of ghost-like image. And suddenly he realized he had a character. And he put a top hat on and a thing, and it was the critic. He had created his own inner critic that had stopped him from creating and manifested it. So the inner critic is what stops us. The inner or the outer critic. You know, the outer critic, you know, can be, you know, you've heard of, um, you know, um, you know, good criticism versus bad criticism and all that. You know, there ultimately is no good criticism. There certainly is bad criticism, but, you know, good, you know any, anything at all, which doesn't mean that you, there is no dialectic. There is a dialectic, but, you know, to actually create a dialectic of criticism, is, there's only a few people who can really have enough understanding because they themselves have to be artists. Um, you know, and, and that's rare and far between, particularly in the papers where, you know, basically, you know, the critic's function is to kind of chop up uh, into a million pieces as much as he can, because that's what sells papers. But it's not coming from an inner dialectic. It's not coming from a real place of saying, what is the nature of art? What is the nature of expression? This ain't Aristotle that we're talking about. You know what I mean? And this atmosphere, this kind of greenish goo atmosphere of critical, um, you know, self-evaluation starts to infect. Once it infects, very much like a virus, it shuts down the system. Because like any child, you see how sensitive we are um, to any kind of criticism, um, to any kind of negative. Um, you know, they will shut down. Um, the artist is very much like a child. So to the artists out there, I say, allow yourselves you know, to create your own inner world and let nothing in and to stop you. Um, create your own space. You know, and, and then create within it. Um, other people's comments are, are not relevant. Um, and sometimes, you know what? You're going to make something extraordinarily beautiful. Other times, of course, it's not. But so what? You just keep going as long as you enjoy it. Anyway, so that's the concept of the T in a nutshell. The concept of the O or the inner object I refer to it is, is what Sanasaski referred to as the super, super objective or the objective or the reason to be the, the principal cause, the, the why of it, the how, and so forth. And it gets a little bit uh, much more complicated and detailed than that, but that's basically it. And P refers to, to person or persona or character or even audience. Those three ingredients and those three elements are what an actor deals with every time he is in performance. If one of those elements is off, either the T, the O, or the P, you know, it's like having a wonky triangle. Um, is no longer equilateral. When you try to keep that equipose when you work, it's very hard to do. But, you know, with um, practice, like any craft, you know, you get a little better at it. Um, so that's, that's the basic idea. And then I developed exercises that you can do along with it. Um, and uh, it's in my book, uh, Acting for Everyone, or Acting, parenthesis, is for everyone, because we are all actors in that sense. Um, so... Uh, I hope that answers um, your question. The other thing I wanted to say, too, the other one, regarding acting is that, um, you know, we're, in, we're living in interesting times. Um, you know, everybody thinks you know, an actor is someone who pretends to be someone else. An actor doesn't pretend. To do real work, you have to actually, in a sense, become. It's a state of beingness. So what you're really doing is trying to portray reality 
not as a kind of, um, you know, at a distance, but within, you know. Uh, unlike other art forms, uh, which exist in, in space um, for the most part, uh, acting is, um, uh, is uh, sculpting in time. You're dealing with the nature of time itself. Performances can only really exist in the moment, even if they are recorded. Um, so it's an unusual art form because it is self-referential. You are your own canvas, in a sense. So in some ways, it, it can be uh, the most um, uh, extraordinary art, done, I guess, correctly. Or it can be the exact opposite, absolutely nothing. Reacting has got nothing to do with acting. Uh, me acting naturally has got absolutely very little to do with acting. You know, giggling hebephrenically in front of the camera does not make me an actor. Unfortunately, reality TV, which is now 70% of it, is mostly that kind of, excuse the language, crap. Um, and it certainly has very little to do with the art and, uh, and craft of acting, per se. So, um, but those are the times we're in now. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, it, uh, no, That's no, my story, and I'll stick to it. Hmm? What's that? And you do that. I, I, what I was going to say is... Um, you, in listening to some of your discourses, there was there was a, a phrase that you used, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to remember it at this moment. It had to do with the eye, and of being, you know, of creating. Oh wow. Um, the eye. Yeah, you, you, you were talking about the eye and the difference between camera and the eye, and and you and you. Oh well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's that's in the book, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that like I, I talk about in, in the system itself is this, is that the human eye sees about 3,000 frames a second if it were a camera, which it's not. The human eye is so sensitive it can actually see one photon of light, uh, you know, an imaginary unit of light, because light is both a wave and a particle. It's a very strange substance, but it is a substance, you know. You've seen those little, um, you know, those little vacuum toys that are black on one side and they have a little kind of uh, little windmill inside. They're black on one side and silver on the other, and they twirl because um, the light uh, hits the silvered coated side and, and pushes uh, against it. And since it's in a vacuum, it will actually turn. Have you seen those things? I forget what they're called. Yeah. So anyway, uh, one, one photon of light apparently, uh, scientifically, is apparently if you're in a dark room and there's just like literally just one, you know, infinitely small amount of light, the human eye will eventually actually see it. It's that sensitive. And it's seeing at 3,000 frames a second. Well, a camera is going 18 to 22 uh, frames a second, and you need uh, 10 to the 18th power, 10 with 18 zeros behind it of photons before it even registers on the silver nitrate. So multiply those two together, and the ratio between the camera and the human eye is is immense uh, the camera is if, if we saw the way a camera saw we would be completely stone blind so how is it that we see well as you know um, um, you know the old films I think they only went through uh, they only had the speed of about 12 frames a second 8 to 12 frames a second you know the old Charlie Chaplin Buster Keaton pieces right um, Max Sennett, you know, and the, that 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 jerky movement was because it was, a, you know, a, it was a series of photographs, right? Photograph, 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 um, and the space between the photographs they could only fit in twelve, as opposed to you know, uh, to many more that they can now. 
when they got to about 18 to 22 uh, frames a second, an interesting thing happens to the optic nerve at the back of the eye is it gives up trying to see each photograph. It just tires out um, and, in the, and creates this illusion of movement. Um, so it looks like they're moving, but if, if we had the eyes of a Leonardo da Vinci, we would actually see a hummingbird uh, in flight, we would actually be seeing photograph, photograph, photograph. So, um, so, so if you look at that and then you examine um, the difference, you start asking yourself questions like, well, how does the camera see? Um, we, we somewhat understand how the human eye sees, but how does a camera see? How do we see what a camera sees? Um, the early pioneers of film, uh, people like Eisenstein, in Russia, you know, the creator of montage, of so-called, you know, editing, started doing some experiments, you know, uh, in the early years. And um, there's a story in which he takes uh, one of Russia's great actors. I think it might have been Chelyapin or one of those guys, stage actors. Um, you know, film was just being birthed at the time. Um, and he um, filmed uh, the actor and he just gave him an eye line. Right, just said, look in this uh, direction, and and, uh, um, and said, uh, you know, don't don't do anything. What's what we in acting call the neutral mask. Um, and so Shalyapin did that. If it was to Shalyapin, I can't remember who it was, but um, and then he um, intercut that with a locomotive in the eye line. In other words, it looked like a, a locomotive was moving towards the actor. You know shot of the actor, locomotive, shot of the actor, locomotive, uh, basic editing. And, uh, and then he blew it up and played it in a, in a huge theater, I guess you could in those days, to, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of people, and asked them what they saw. And, and they said uh, the actor was terrified. He looked terrified when that training was coming at him. Uh, he took the same actor and had him look at, uh, you know, food, this huge banquet, and the audience report, you know, stated uh, that the actor looked so hungry. So he realized that the audience was projecting their own inner uh, world onto the screen, very much like a, a Rorschach test. For those of you who don't know what a Rorschach test is, it's, it's the famous inkblot test, where they just took inkblots, uh, put them on paper, and squashed it together, and then asked people, um, to, to, tell, uh, to tell them what they saw. And some people would see butterflies, and other people would see, would see, would see uh, dragons, um, you know, and, um, and each person would see something differently. So, um, so we're projecting, uh, we're actively participating uh, when we're watching the screen uh, from our own inner world. Um, so, and and I, I saw that very clearly. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I saw that very clearly uh, when I did Ticket to Heaven, for example, and uh, which was, you know, a pretty relatively, it was a cult hit, and I was going from city to city, different film festivals, and I would re-watch, re-watch exactly the same thing, the same movie, obviously, frame by frame, right? It hadn't changed from city to city, and yet I had a totally different emotional response to it every time. Um, so... Um, I said, what's going on here? Why am I responding totally different, differently? Um, uh, and the, because the audience was responding totally differently. Uh, you know, so, 
I was participating in the creation of the performances I was watching it. So it, it sort of boils down to this idea of, you know, like, oh, good, bad performances, oh, I liked it, or I didn't like it. You know, some people, some audiences loved the movie. Other audiences were indifferent. Other audiences, you know, they all responded very differently. And, and I began to see that, in fact, it's really an individual thing. Uh, the way I say it, and I put it in the book, it's always 2 a.m., no matter where we are when we're watching a movie and we're alone and we're having our own private uh, discourse with it. So, um, so understanding these basic ideas of, of the fact that, that um, there is a tremendous amount of interpretation going on there uh, when we're interacting with camera, uh, it started to kick off a series of ideas on, on what exactly was going on. So, Camera is not what we think it to be, you know, it, and I started thinking, well, what do you see? How do you see for the camera? You know, what is it the camera sees? Um, uh, can you hear me? I can, yes. Yeah. Is, and if you look at the early, sorry to ramble on so much, but we are tech, talking somewhat technically here, but if you look at the early um, actors, the early, quote, stars, and I put uh, that in brackets, you know, it's not a misnomer that they're called stars. Stars are light-emitting um, suns, right? They give off light. And the early actors, the Rudolph Valentinos, the Gene Harlows, the et cetera, et cetera, um, those early actors were either kinetic actors, i.e. Charlie Chaplin with a tremendous amount of motion, or they had faces, you know, large eyes, big cheekbones, um, you know, striking features, that reflected light better than the so-called normal face. You know, if you took a, um, Valentino's face and you sort of like ironed it out two-dimensionally, you would get a very large surface of, of area of light, certainly a Gene Harlow with the hair and the big eyes. Um, so they actually reflected a lot more light than the so-called non-star. I mean, physically reflected it. Remember that in those days, the technology was so crude that the actors had to have this green makeup to, to make them more reflective surfaces for the massive amounts of heat lamps and lights that had to be used to register on that primitive camera. So um, as technology of film improved, and specifically around the 1950s, it in a sense became progressively more possible for, quote, normal-looking people to look visible, to be visible to the camera, to be seen. So if you put two people together and one is, quote, a star and the other one isn't, the star is the one to whom your eye will move to. Um, hence the old adage of, you know, not working with children or animals because they will upstage you no matter what you do. They're highly, in a sense, reflective instruments. Um, you know, like that great line in Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, you know, yeah, you know, and she, she said, you used to be big, and she said, I am big. It's the movies that got small or something like that, right? <laughs> right. Let me ask you this. Remember the expression on her face? Remember that great <laughs> last shot with her eyes wide open? You know, I mean, it was like perfect. So, but let me ask you this. We, we've got literally about, oh, 
13 minutes right now left, and I, and I want to talk about some of the movies you're producing and that you've got coming out. And I also want to tell the listeners that, that uh, you know, if they TiVo you or U-verse you, uh, you've got a slew of movies on coming up that uh, because you've done so many. Um, yeah, that, that there's, there's a whole bunch coming out there. There's usually about, um, you know, uh, there used to be about 20 a month. If you go to Google, you'll see what's playing where and when. But I produced um, and star in... Um, uh, these two horror movies, My Soul to Take, Part 1 and 2, which hopefully will come out this year. It's being edited uh, as we speak. And uh, I've done a, a slew of these little pictures um, that uh, will be coming out this year. Uh, but uh, My Soul to Take is a, sort of a classic horror movie. I've done about, uh, I guess, about 10 horror movies in my career. And, uh, you know, the five stages of the actor's career. Um, the first stage is you play the ingenue or the lover. Uh, then you play the hero. I did that for many years. Then you play the villain. I did that for many years. Then you start playing losers. And then when you get to my age, uh, you start playing the monster, i.e. the horror movies. So um, I had a blast. This is Spencer J. Kim is writer-director. Um, and we're hoping finally to get it out this year. I think it, you know, it's kind of like um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They play the demonic father, Adam, who's possessed by the devil and and, you know, standard kind of slasher movie in, in the vein of Friday the 13th. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've been working on many other projects. I'm going out to Italy uh, in December to shoot two small little pictures, one, one of which I wrote called Tears of Persephone, which is a kind of docudrama that uh, um, deals with the south of Italy uh, where I was born. And another one that is being done by um, a fellow by the name of Gianni Scarfo, um, uh, which is set against the neorealist movement of Rome after the war uh, in that great classic uh, Roma Città Aperta, you know, the famous first neorealist film that Anna Magnani starred in. And this is a film about the woman that Anna Magnani portrayed, a woman by the name of Gulacci. And I'm going to be playing um, an American GI of Italian background. I'm also going to get uh, the role of an old uh, Southern Italian immigrant, which I'm going to do in my own language, which is Calabrian. Um, so I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to shoot some of Tears of Persephone. Um, and I just did a screenplay, not just, I, I wrote it about 10 years ago called Blood Moon, which is, a, I call it a suspense thriller on acid, um, which I'm hoping um, will be, uh, well, it's actually going to be directed once we get financing by uh, uh, um, the director, Ralph Thomas, with whom I did <clears throat> Ticket to Heaven uh, many years ago, and who has done many, many films and as one of the consummate uh, directors to have emerged from Canada. Um, I'm finishing um, a series of books that I've been writing and essays, including uh, Acting for Everyone, um, a book called Diary of a, of a Malibu Man, or Diary of an Ex-Malibu Man, a collection of essays in the new media. I'm interested in sort of like the, you might say, geopolitical um, ideas in, in sort of what reality TV really implies and sort of the Paris Hilton generation that we're in, you know, the post uh, no bush ab you know, era that we're in now where uh, certainly my business is, is so transformed, not just by, of course, Internet um, and the new media where it will be possible for a a 12-year-old to make his own movies, um, 
you know, with with between editing and the new cameras and all that. And as as we talked about earlier on, you know, right. movie making right. is at the same point. I think uh, uh, only exponentially so that where painting was at the turn of the century when um, chemists were able to extract color um, from cheaply from uh, petroleum, thereby making it possible for, quote, the average person to afford paint. And out of that came Cubism, Impressionism, you know, Van Gogh, all all the great uh, Monet, all those guys could not have been painters in the Renaissance because they would have had to have patrons um, that... um, um, yeah, you know, they're making a, a painting in those days. Uh, yeah, it costs almost as much as making a movie. You know, so you have to be uh, either uh, patronized by the church or by the de' Medici's or, you know, the color purple was so expensive that the city of Siena went to war with the city of um, Volterra in, uh, in Tuscany over a certain plant from which was derived the color purple. Um, so... Um, now, uh, filmmaking, you know, you, you get a d- little camera, the high, you know, desk camera and a, a Mac and Final Cut uh, Pro and, and Final Draft and, you know, and, and suddenly you've got, uh, you got a movie, you know, get your friends together and, and start shooting uh, and it looks good. So, um, you know, the studio days are radically, I think, rapidly coming to an end. Uh, there's going to be a total dissolution of the whole system. The whole paradigm um, is really over. Um, there won't be, you know, 10 networks. There'll be 10,000 networks in a sense. You know, each person in a sense will almost be his own network, like, you know, doing this talk show right now, which right. is being broad- broadcast around the world. Um, so uh, what is to stop filmmakers from doing exactly the same thing? And they are doing the same thing. And so the question is really, um, you know, what will be the new model, you know, and um, and how will it be quote uh, uh, moneyfied, right? The danger will be that uh, there will be the usual kind of monopolistic uh, practices that have been going on for some time now that you know they'll try to control, but you can't uh, over the internet. You know, you you'll be able to make a movie, and and it, even something like Facebook, which is I think how we met, right? Uh, the matter of Facebook, uh, you know, you, you, yeah, you, it almost becomes a network, right? In a sense, right? So create something, and maybe somebody, someone out there wants to see it, you know? And uh, yeah, so let me let me ask you this, Nick. Um, uh, well, we've got about eight minutes. I, I want to go back, uh, and I, I know you and I will continue these conversations because you've got so much to offer. So, no, um, as time permits, you know, we'll we'll come back and we'll we'll continue. Um, I wanted to make sure that you, you know, got to talk about your movies. But you, you, you have a website, and did you say that Ticket for Heaven, you could see Ticket to Heaven off your website somewhere? T- ticket to Heaven. Uh, you can go right, to my I, Italian. I, yeah, Ticket to Heaven. You can go to my Italian website. Um, yep. Just Google me, type in Italian site, and, and you'll see. I've also got the poets, which um, I wrote and produced. Uh, the Death of Socrates, my adaptation of. Uh, of uh, the Apologia, um, which I staged and filmed, and uh, Hotel Praha, uh, which is a piece I wrote um, about uh, the fall of communism, uh, which I filmed uh, on stage. It's a a verse piece. Um, Also some of my music and my paintings, which are available 
um, and are um, available if you want to download or if you want to buy. Um, but there's a lot of stuff there, yeah. Just the Italian site or Sito Italiano uh, on Google. But if you just type in my name, Nick Mancuso, um, a lot of stuff will come up, and uh, one of which is the Italian site. You can go to that one. And uh, there's also a ger- several German sites um, and um, other, other kinds of websites that were set up by, by the fans around the world. Uh, and I'm very grateful to them. They've been very helpful to me, to, uh, you know, by establishing, in a sense, uh, this kind of uh, network. Um, and uh, there's a lot of material uh, on me uh, and about the various things that I do. If you are interested in uh, talking to me, you can contact me directly at nickmancuso1 at yahoo.com or just Facebook me. Uh, I respond uh, when I have time. And uh, I'd be happy to answer your questions. And um, this is a very interesting, and I'd love to, you know, continue uh, this discourse at some point in the future, Rex. I enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we've got literally, you know, maybe five minutes, but I, I wanted to come back because I'd like to talk to you about directing and working with directors, and, and because you direct and you produce, there's, there's so many things I want to ask you. But, but Yeah, I've directed. Back. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to say that going back to this notion, they're, they're, I'm still trying to pull up from my memory the comment that you made, but 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 maybe I can kind of piece it together and have you address it in, in just briefly for the the obligation of the actor to the camera to the audience. In other words, because, because it has to do with motion or because because of the way the camera sees, uh, what must the actor? What well, you know, like I said, you know, film film is a director's medium. You know, it's an editor's medium. It's a cinematographer's medium. It's not really per se an actor's medium as such. I always use the analogy of the jet pilot. The stage actor is like a jet pilot. He flies his own plane. Um, the film actor is like an astronaut. He flies higher. He flies faster. Everyone knows his name, but he ain't doing the flying. So, um, you know, film actors really uh, have limited um, control or power over the, the nature of the medium itself. It's only on stage, which is an extension of the human ear, do they have, you know, really the sort of the, the, the actual expression to be able to do the kind of uh, work that an actor really does. It doesn't mean you can't have great performances, but if you really think about it, you don't really have a De Niro without a Marty Scorsese, one of the great directors. You don't have a, a Pacino, you know, with a, without a Francis Ford Coppola. You don't have a Brando without you know, an Eli Kazan uh, at the helm. Uh, it's a director's medium. Great performances can only really, in a sense, come to the fore um, at the hands of great uh, directors um, and and editors. Um, I myself direct as well. I've done a lot of stage plays that I've written and adapted, and, and um, I did one on the life of uh, Eleanor Ducey a few years ago, which I wrote, um, co-wrote, um, and, and directed, and directed, and I've directed about oh about uh, I don't know twelve stage pieces, and um, you know, over the years. Um, and understand the nature of directing, but, you know, like acting, directing, you know, it's what John Houston said, you know, it's 98% casting, i.e., let the actor do what he does. A great director creates an ambience or an atmosphere whereby an actor can work at his peak or at his capacity. So he really has to provide the atmosphere more than anything else. He doesn't sit there, quote, directing. You know, great directors don't direct, and great actors don't act. You know, they just are. 
you know, um, someone like a Clint Eastwood, for example, you know, who is able to cast correctly and allows actors to do what it is they do best, gives them an atmosphere to work in that is uh, positive and nourishing. Uh, the problem occurs, of course, when you start doing all these highly technical movies, as I have. A lot of action-adventure, I've done a lot of those, you know, uh, where basically the star really is not the actor, but the effect, the explosion, the, you know, the fish, as Dino De Laurentiis referred to uh, in Jaws, you know, the very first kind of techno film, um, you know, where, where now really the stars of movies really are the effects, not really the actors, with the exception of people like Sean Penn and Russell Crowe, Charlize Theron, um, you know, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, but you really think about only a handful of, uh, of great actors are coming to the fore these days. It's no longer really an actor's medium or, you know, quote, the star's medium, per se. You know, it became a kind of superstar's medium, yeah, with Tom Cruise and, and uh, with um, uh, Brad Pitt and, 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 you know, the global stars, the Schwarzeneggers and all that. But, um, you know, th those are really different professions. They're not really, uh, you know, in the same category as the kind of work that a Russell Crowe or a Gary Oldman or an Al Pacino does. You know, Al Pacino is a true actor. The actor's actor, so is Dustin Hoffman. Nothing's emerged um, all that much, um, you know, in the last 20 years because New York um, used to be the, the training ground, you know, and it no longer is. It's just too expensive to do theater, right? Think about the last great American playwright. Um, from Sam Shepard, you know, and David Mamet, sure, but he's been around since the 60s. Who are the new, um, you know, great theater writers like the Tennessee Williams, who I worked with um, in Atlanta, Georgia many years ago? I worked with him twice. You know, where's the voice coming from? Well, you know, when it costs $3 million to do a play, how can you do it anymore? You know, New York is the... So there are musicals and on one side, which are good, you know, great entertainment, and reality shows on the other where can the actor train? So you look at the number of Oscars that have won, been won the last 10 years and how many of them have been Australian, from New Zealand, uh, you know, from England, even from Canada, you know, from all over the world, but not the United States of America. Um, it, you know, it gets progressively less and less. And, and that is because of the shift that's occurred here. So um, anyway, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, you did, and, and we're going to continue this at another time. You and I will uh, spend some time scheduling it, and it will let listeners know. And uh, I sure appreciate this. And uh, uh, like I, I told you earlier, you know, I've been spending the last few days watching Nick Mancuso movies on TV, and uh, I'm sure enjoying it, and I've enjoyed this discussion. So, Well, me too, Rex. I've enjoyed it very much, and um, greetings to everyone out there, and, and thanks for, for the opportunity, and hopefully we'll talk soon. We will, and... Uh, uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day, and uh, then, then, like I said, we'll let the listeners know when you're going to be coming back. And thank you, Nick. Will do, and, and uh, Merry Christmas to everybody, and happy holidays uh, around the world. Take care. Yeah, all right. Thank you, and to you. Oh, I want to thank uh, my fascinating guest, Mr. Nick Mancuso, and, uh, and you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat. I've got many more exciting guests coming up. So be sure to stay tuned, and please keep sharing this website and these interviews with all your friends and your contacts. Go ahead. Now that the interview's over, go ahead, put it on Twitter. Go ahead, put it on Facebook on your wall, and let other people know, uh, uh, you know, what Nick has had to say. I really appreciate that. And and for all, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, Facebook group Facebook group by clicking on the group link at my profile. There's also a Facebook fan page, and everybody. I want you to have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, 
that's a wrap.